Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nakum Siegel Network, NakumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app around the world. And it is an intriguing time once again in the political world. We are in the midst of the second impeachment of now former President Donald John Trump, the 45th president of the United States, uh, which is actually going on as we speak. We're recording this show on Wednesday morning. So we are kind of mid uh, impeachment. We had the opening day yesterday and we are in getting into the middle of it or the meat of it, I should say, uh, today, tomorrow, Friday. Uh, is it preordained? We don't know. We're not here to predict that, but we do have a great guest uh, this week. Uh, ben Smith, the, the media columnist for the New York Times, formerly the CEO of BuzzFeed. He was at Politico. He was at the New York Sun, as well as the New York Observer. Uh, ben, I think once upon a time we've had you on the show, but I'll just say welcome to Spin Class. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I do think I was on here once before. So what does it mean to be a media columnist? Uh, and are you, in fact, the enemy of the enemy of the people? <laughs> um, uh, it is a weird job. It's just all navel gazing all the time, you know. Just sort of, I mean, it's a bit on one hand. On the other hand, it's a great beat because, like everything, I mean, so much is media now. You know, whether it's social media or and the tech platforms or, you know, Donald Trump more than anything else was essentially a media figure, right? Like he was not a inside politician or a retail politician. He was a entertainment industry entrepreneur who you know, parlay that into the presidency. And so I, my view is that most stories are media and I write about mostly whatever I want. Well, that's great, I guess, from a journalistic point of view. But let's talk about the media for a second, because after four years sure. of Trump, as you say, a media professional, some people would certainly say that the media made Trump. The only reason, you know, he was able to get past the establishment was because the incessant free uh, or, you know, what's known as, I, I guess you would say earned as opposed to paid media coverage that he got back in 2016 and his just ability to dominate the airwaves uh, day after day and set the agenda for so long, uh, not just on traditional media, but on social media as well. And, you know, it's a phenomenon that we really haven't seen. I'm sure there are plenty of people yeah. in the political firmament who want to emulate that. But uh, so far, yeah. not so good for most of them. So I guess, you know, no, I think he's, I mean, I think, no, go ahead. No, no, go. So my, I guess my question is to you is like, how has he race, reset the deck, reshuffled the deck, uh, reset the playing field, et cetera, all those metaphors, uh, you know, in your estimation, now that you are at the, uh, the gray lady of the New York times as part of the establishment. Yeah. You know, I think, I mean, I think he, both more and less than than people expect. Like on one hand, right, he was so singular, his sort of ability to essentially connect with his followers and mess with the media via so directly via social media was kind of the sort of things that people have been predicting for a long time. Um, you know, whether it's something you saw as a kind of like really positive form of populism where you can just connect directly with a politician or as a kind of big brother style. kind of unfiltered message from the top all the all the time. And yet, and on the other hand, there's not a next Trump because he he wasn't just a product of social media cover, 
power. He was a product of American television and celebrity and was one of the, you know, had one of the best broadcast, tele, you know, most successful broadcast tele, and best broadcast television shows for years at the peak of reality TV and really connected with a mass market in a very traditional way as a kind of like classic 90s, 2000s celebrity that, you know, there aren't a lot of other figures like that. I think if Oprah was as active on social media as he is, you could sort of imagine her having that connection. But it was a really pretty unusual combination. I think when you see somebody like Josh Hawley, like nobody knows who that is, right? Everybody, and so and so he can't arrive on social media with well, that kind of velocity. Well, I guess there, there's so many things, so many questions that Trump brings to mind and the the phenomenon that was and maybe still is, although you know, we'll talk I, – I want to get to his now being deplatformed uh, issue in a couple of seconds. But – you, you know, the ability to dominate the the airwaves, but while at the same time calling the media his enemy, um, you know, I think it's he, he's kind of and maybe I'd love you for you to comment on this and how he's kind of made the media itself into teams, similar to the way the politics is all about teams these days. It's not even about, you know, there's no crossing the aisle you're on one team you're the other team it's kind of the media is on two teams right you have the you have the pro you have the right-wing media and the mainstream media which is essentially perceived by the right wing as being left-wing uh you know and 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 what does that do to our what does that do to our politics and to our society um i mean i think it's it's a major change. And I guess as a member of the media, I find it pretty depressing. I mean, I think it was this, it was an unusual and, I mean, I think one way to look at it is um, that it was a pretty unusual thing in the second half of the 20th century in the United States that was a product of broadcast technology and the sort of centralization that you had the and end of the advertising business that you had these big, widely trusted commercial entities that had basically the same point of view. And it was like, there were really bad things about that, right? Like the silence around the Vietnam War, which was maintained by news organizations that didn't want to challenge the government. Um, and but it created, and, and a lot of other countries don't really have it, right? I mean, I think in France you have sort of, or in Israel or in Britain in a way, although you also have the BBC, you have media outlets each with a political identity. I think that's sort of where we're headed now in the United States, probably more the norm globally. But we are giving up this huge sort of, you know, ag- set of agreed facts, and it's it's sad. And I think you know, a, a part I, I would blame, to a fairly large degree, both like Fox News's decision, a really clever commercial decision, to set up a news organization whose real core was just attacking other news organizations. They never employed a lot of journalists around the world or anything like that. Their whole posture has been attacking the rest of the media and undermining confidence in them, sometimes rightly, but often just for cynical business reasons. And then Donald Trump, whose whole politics is just attacking the media, usually for saying things that are true, but also sometimes for things that are wrong. And so I think like when you had a political party that made a you know probably reasonable political choice that the, to make the, the the you know that central media their enemy, there wasn't really a way for it. No, of course not. But you know there was this idea, at least some of the media organizations themselves had held themselves to an idea that they are the neutral arbiters, right? I mean, and of course, that's a very uh, holier uh, than thou type of position to be in. But, 
you know, the organization that you work work for, and I think, you know, it's I think has been very successful during the Trump era. Era, uh, meaning the New York Times, the Washington Post, and some of these, you know, who have who were kind of predicted to fail by by many on the right. Um, but you know, where, but the people who don't want to listen to them will say, well, they're on the other side. And if everybody's on one side or the other side and you can't, everybody can't even come to any common ground, you know, where does that, where does that leave us? I mean, even in Israel, I would say as, as stratified and divided a society as, you know, as exists, you know, now entering their fourth election, uh, in two years, which is yeah, absolutely phenomenal. Uh, you know, the, the vast majority of the country, uh, has even though politically they you know it, it's kind of divided up into you know yes BB no BB but uh, the vast majority of the country agrees on a lot of common principles and I don't know that you know maybe we're not seeing that anymore in the in the US uh, which is I, although I think right. you know in the end it's there are a lot of people who are still moderate and reaching for the middle or want to be in the middle they're just not as politically active as those on the polls. Yeah, I mean, I think it's mess. It's complicated, right? I do think that obviously the country is more polarized than it's been in our lifetimes, and that's, you know, that's partly a media phenomenon and partly about lots of other factors, including race and economics and class, in really, you know, all sorts of stuff that isn't really fundamentally about like was CNN too mean to Mitch McConnell? Um, um, and so it's harder and harder to sort of speak to all those people who come in with kind of different premises. I also think the thing that you sort of hinted at is true too, which is that there are a lot of people who find all this stuff like extremely annoying and, and, and would, and I think probably would like to find some media that is less, that is spending less time, you know, sort of arbitrating ideological stuff. And then I would also say, and it's frustrating, like most journalists, most employed journalists, spend most of their time gathering facts and writing articles about, you know, snow removal and the mayor's race and, you know, when exactly schools are going to be open and are caught in the crossfire of this, you know, craziness about, you know, whether you were too mean to Donald Trump today, but really like our professionals doing their jobs. And then when they, you know, cover the school board meeting and some school board member is stealing money, that school board member like starts screaming at them that they're fake news as a way to distract. Let's talk about deplatforming, so, right? So Donald Trump is is in the middle of his second impeachment trial. We won't judge whether yeah. it's appropriate, inappropriate, uh, smart, legal, whatever. That was decided yesterday. I guess it you know, certainly is legal. It's been voted upon, done. Uh, but he's without his most potent weapon, Twitter. And uh, yeah. I think that's kind of glaring, given how poorly his lawyers did. I think it's kind of objective. Republicans and Democrats actually can agree on that one. Uh, where does what, what's the meaning? I mean, now we we could have ignored him, but yeah. kind of the world, at least I am, kind of waiting to see how he actually feels based on his Twitter feed, and that's kind of absent. I don't know really, you know. Normally, you would, he probably would have fired one or both of his lawyers yesterday over over Twitter, uh, and. Yeah, so talk about deplatforming for a second from a media perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, let's see. I mean, it's 
it's very complicated and these platforms are very much at sea, you know, exercising this kind of massive power that used to be reserved to governments over sort of the boundaries of legal speech in some ways, less the US government than other governments and not and not having clear rules or really wanting to enforce rules and being, you know, scared of crossing powerful politicians and also of alienating their the audience they're making money from. And so they're totally reactive to press, sort of like panicking and doing stuff in an ad hoc basis without any real, I think, clear set of principles or rules that has led everyone to hate them. But, <laughs> I mean, you know, the that's, public that's out there, now. right? I mean, you're you're out there trying to say that the public should be, you know, should have access to more information and free speech, all these things we hold dear, and yet we can't hear the voice of i mean we could right trump could give an interview he could go on tv he could i mean there are other ways but his most uh effective methods of communication are denied to him um and 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 i think at this point we kind of see it's it's kind of glaring i mean like a couple days ago it didn't really matter but yesterday today tomorrow we're not hearing from him Mm mm-hmm Yeah, no, it's incredible. It's shocking how, I mean, one thing that I, I like, even I, I mean, I was, I was amazed that how, um, how powerful that Twitter ban was. I mean, the extent to which he was sort of living inside my head and, and, and that just sort of, you know, silenced him. I mean, it was, I think it gave a lot of world leaders pause. You saw, I mean, the left-wing um, Mexican president, AMLO, compare it to the Spanish Inquisition the Twitter ban and um, Angela Merkel objected. I mean, you know, if you're a leader of another country, much less the US, the idea that some like random lawyer in San Francisco can just totally yeah. silence you and just exactly. I mean, a nameless, faceless terrible. type of person. And now it goes to some unknown committee of Facebook people, you know, luminaries, world, world intellectuals, right? Now, if you've ever kind of believed in the. <laughs> Well, I don't know. You know, if you're kind of uh, into those conspiracy theories in a second, you know, you're kind of you're thinking, okay, so who are these people who are deciding whether Facebook can carry President Trump or not or former President Trump? I mean, that's that's just wild. Right. You have this these these face people cabal. I mean, all those all those things are are come, you know, come back into the in the to the discourse. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, right, like, right, it's it sort of, I mean, he, I mean, I, here's the thing, you have these global platforms, they're just, as a matter of fact, they are websites, they are global, they are private entities, and the people who run them have every right under American law, and I think particularly if you're a conservative under American law, do whatever they want, and delete whoever whoever's account they feel like deleting on their private platform. Um, if you're uncomfortable with that situation, you got to start thinking, okay, who governs global communications platforms that speak to hundreds of millions or billions of people? Like, okay, like if I'm not comfortable with the CEO of the company deciding who he likes and he doesn't like, and I'm not comfortable with the American government just, you know, having a, you know, minister of information as in a lot of countries who just makes those decisions, how is this supposed to work? I don't know. So, so I think like, I think that's, I don't think that's a trivial question. I think people like to sort of 
act like, well, obviously there ought to be regulation or obviously this ought to be free speech. And I don't, I just think it's really a complicated question. And the fact of how global these platforms are, which maybe isn't tenable, maybe ultimately the walls come up and every country has its own platform um, because, and because then it's easier. Then it's just each country has a law and you follow that law and the law in the Philippines is going to be really, really different from the one in the US and that's just the deal. And you can't really communicate across them. But I don't really see that happening soon. And so, I mean, I think Facebook has sort of grabbed on to this idea by a bunch of smart lawyers that what you what you try to do is you set up a not faceless, like an institution where there are a, essentially a court where there are judges and who are sort of diverse ideologically and geographically. And like, you know, you got the guy from the Cato Institute and you've got, you know, the leading human rights lawyer in Colombia and a whole bunch of other people. And, and they start making decisions that are pretty well reasoned ideally like and and that follow from each other and that set out a sort of fairly clear set of policies that anybody that you can disagree with or agree with but that don't just feel like they're based on what the ceo had for breakfast or which political party he prefers i mean that's not an ideal solution but and it doesn't deal with the honestly the more important thing about these platforms which is not that michael fragan can write something idiotic on twitter it's that the, an algorithm will then distribute that to 100 million people. Um, but it's a start. And I think the idea that they could have some kind of transparent enforced rules is better than the status quo. But I also agree with you that you're empowering this sort of strange new global body. This one is called the Facebook Oversight Board, which, by the way, may bomb. And Facebook, perhaps Facebook will go away, right? Maybe everybody get bored of Facebook and our grandparents who are on it will stop using it and this whole conversation <laughs> will become irrelevant. But um, well, and Twitter, like, you know what, like, I, these things could just be fads and go away and all this conversation. And, and we're all just watching TikTok and Disney Plus. And so who who knows, right? I think it's I think but I think that the idea, yeah, but I think it's an interesting idea. And I do think that there's a range, this could be a joke, the idea that Facebook is setting up this incredibly $130 million global super court. Or, you know, we could be laughing about it right until the hell. Okay, well, speaking of conspiracy theories, uh, I want to talk about the Fox News lawsuits, uh, I guess, from Smartmatic, Dominion, etc. I I guess a couple questions that I have, you know, for you as the now the observer of the media. Number one is, okay, so Fox News is, I mean, clearly the fact that people were accusing Fox News of I'm sorry, Smartmatic Dominion of election fraud or participating in election fraud was probably newsworthy. Okay, now I'm not saying I and and I will also give that the people that they've targeted are in as Fox News uh, anchors are both opinion and news people. At least uh, maybe they're supposed to be or not. But I mean, it this is I mean this is a big lawsuit that basically uh, um, I mean and, and so where does if you're Fox News trying to draw the line yeah. between news and opinion, and you actually said they've thrown in more on the opinion side, which clearly they have via their these would be their lineup. Uh, you know how how do you how do you justify a lawsuit like this? I mean, I understand suing the individuals, but the corporation of Fox News, which is supposed to deliver news, and this is newsworthy, and you're being sued for. I mean, they're not participating in this conspiracy. They they, they didn't they don't employ Sidney Powell or Rudy Giuliani. They had them on. Yeah, I mean, I think you know. So first of all, it's actually a remarkably kind of under litigated thing 
I mean, in theory, I do remember I know that this because I published the, the Steele dossier at BuzzFeed, so I know this very well. In theory, you are liable for anything that you publish or air. Doesn't matter. I mean, if, if you know, if you were to say um, that, um, you know. Right. Yeah, there's um, no, no reason to drag us into it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't want to libel anybody. If you were to say something crazy, and, 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 I, and I was then, and I was then, and I, I was then to put to put into the New York Times, Michael Fragan said this crazy thing. I would be just as liable as you are. There's no protection in saying unless you said it in certain ways. If you said it in a police report, the police are allowed to libel people and do all the time. If you said it on the floor of the Congress, that's a public document. But if just as a private citizen, you say something, you're liable. And that also applies, by the way, to television. If, you, if, if a guest says something crazy, um, you can sue the television station for distributing that. Now, I think judges tend to say, look, it was like the person just blurted this thing out. It wasn't really their fault. You know, they're reasonable. But there's a lot of haziness over where those lines are. And so the first part of the Dominion claim is like, okay, you come on, you say something totally bananas, and it's live air, and what can we do? What can we do? But what we can do is not invite you back 11 more times to say exactly the same thing, knowing you're going to say it. So that's how they rope in Giuliani and Powell to this. And by the way, just and actually, just to, and just to go back, the, the Smartmatic lawsuit in particular is, is a very dangerous and strong lawsuit to these companies, because Fox, Newsmax, OAN, because you know the, the allegation is that Smartmatic software was used in in georgia and pennsylvania and arizona and that it secretly shifted votes from um right well, from also Trump, which is smart, smart matter was only being used in one county in the whole country verified it's insane theory it's an insane yeah that's the real thing in this case when, the, when i talked to the, their lawyer he said you know i thought this was a strong case and then i realized wait you weren't even in pennsylvania or you weren't in georgia i mean this is a slam dunk case and so i think that's and then, and then the problem for Fox is, is this was not just Giuliani and Powell. This was Maria Bartiromo. This was Lou Dobbs. This was their employees. This was Janine Pirro. These were these. So on one hand, it's their employees, you know, saying this totally nuts thing. And by the way, in politics, you turn on cable news, you can hear people say crazy things. You can hear people say that Donald Trump was like a Russian spy. You can hear people say that um, Joe Biden is a Chinese spy. Like you can hear crazy stuff. But those things, but and within the context of politics, courts tend to give you pretty widely way to say crazy stuff. The problem, and I think, a lot, and these commentators are used to saying crazy stuff about politics and getting away with it. And I think nobody quite focused on. Wait a second, Dominion, Smartmatic. On one hand, these are political actors. On the other hand, they're just private companies who sell a thing. And so, on the on the damages side of a lawsuit, you know, you have to show that you were harmed. And I think often, if it's like he said something, he called me a Nazi, he called me a communist. It's like, okay, like what's like, that's sort of political speech. What's the, you know, how are you really suing? How much, you know, what was the cost to you that that Sean Hannity said something mean? Um, here, they're like, oh, the cost is that our, you know, that our partners in Brazil and in Ghana canceled their contracts, and so there's a hundred million dollars, please. Right, like it has this very clear um, reputational cost to a business that depends on its reputation for being fair in politics, and so yeah, I, I guess they they're guess not going to want to have a lot of discovery massive, here. Massive okay, Ben, last question Fox for you, I, if if we can, uh, object of fascination, particularly in the Jewish community uh, and our listenership, is Jared Kushner. Uh, intense fascination, 
and uh, being nominated, of course, for the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, you know, uh, this week. So in the news, uh, now retired. Nobody knows what he's going to do. But uh, you you worked for him, with him uh, back in the day. Uh, there's been many incarnations of Jared Kushner. But, you know, what are your thoughts after four years of him being the de facto chief of staff of the Donald Trump administration, by all accounts, the you know, the guy who ran things and even ran the campaign. You know, what can you tell us that we don't know about Jared Kushner? Um, well, so I should correct. Ah, okay. I, I I'm going to question at you anyway, so it doesn't matter. Didn't, didn't know him there. I mean, I mean, I think that, I mean, I think, you know, I don't think that this admin this one term administration and reelection campaign are going to go down in history as like, wow, that was a well run operation guy who's running that thing ought to run something else like these were rolling public disasters like we've never seen. Um, just um, that said, I don't think I mean, I don't think that, you know, this was fundamentally like Jared Kushner's management style driving the show. Like, obviously, this was Donald Trump and he was this totally singular figure who in some ways gave up enormous amounts of power by never delegating any and wasn't really good at being pre- just good at being president. Like he, whatever, if you, if you liked his agenda, you were, I imagine were also fairly frustrated at his inability to get things done and then lost his, and then, you know, bumbled COVID and lost his reelection. And I think Kush, you know, Kushner will probably largely be remembered for really like lame nonsense. Like the website, he, do you remember the website that was going to solve COVID with Google that he rolled out and then just never happened? I mean, I think this administration will probably be judged primarily by its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. That'll be in the you know, that'll be the chapter in the history book. And Jared was sort of in charge of it for a while and did poorly, and then kind of got sidelined. Um, I think the you know the places the place that you know for that he probably I mean I think the Abraham Accords are, are interesting and like. I think there's sort of a partisan impulse to be dismissive of them that I actually think the Biden administration isn't indulging in, right? Like, the, and I think that's probably that's a lasting legacy that he. And do you give any uh, credence to number one for. Ivanka running uh, in Florida uh, against Marco Rubio and the story that came out yesterday, not in a U.S. newspaper but in an English newspaper, that she's begging. Trump to cut ties with MGT, Marjorie Taylor, uh, sorry, MTG, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, to uh, save her credibility on the Jewish side. I mean, one of the entertaining subplots of the administration has always been Jared and Ivanka kind of honestly incompetently attempting to manage their images away from their their you know from from donald as though like the moon can like do some pr and cut its ties with the sun you know they have no independent identity they never will for most americans like they're they're only famous because they're donald trump's son-in-law and daughter and so i don't and and, and they, but they do there is this sort of constant attempt to leak that like well actually we didn't agree with that thing but i don't really think anybody cares i don't think that i don't i mean i think that in fact it's not, ivanka's gonna let, get elected to florida it's gonna be because she embraces marjorie taylor green is on, is on stage with her right like she's not going to be running for the there's no space for her in some okay kind of like i'm gonna well run to ben the smith the media columnist for the new york times the gray lady uh the uh now 
trying to tell us whether the media is uh, doing a good job. So I'll go back with the uh, whether the media is still the enemy of the people. I guess we'll see. Um, you know, obviously, I said. That, uh, <laughs> Yeah, give the hey, uh, give that, give that a break. You're, you're okay. I, 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 apologies. Your audience okay. relaxed about that. <laughs> okay, and, 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 and I, I apologize. I actually meant to say, truthfully, when I said the enemy of my enemy, I think that I was trying to say the very fact that the New York Times has an internal critic, has a media watchdog inside, and that they pay somebody to do that, in and of itself, is uh, is is something that we can all. Actually, in our politics, uh, you know, take a little internal criticism, um, and I and I really mean it. That really shouldn't be a team sport. So, Ben, thanks for joining us. I apologize for that last dig. That was more of a uh, tongue-in-cheek joke out there. But uh, we hope to have you back as the media landscape evolves uh, <laughs> over time. And thank you for joining us here on Spin Class. And as we wrap up this show, just a final, uh, some final commentary, some final notes there. Uh, you know, as we know, the impeachment trial is going on. We'll have to cover that a little bit next week uh, if we get to that. But the Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, phenomenon. And she's obviously – she herself has been deplatformed in a way, uh, taken – stripped for committee assignments. I think this is something that the Republicans should have dealt with internally. They chose not to. Liz Cheney being reelected as Tevi Troy predicted uh, or actually not being uh, not being taken off as the leadership uh, as Tevi Troy predicted last week. But I do want to say that Marjorie Taylor Greene – as she said, she doesn't need committee assignments to be effective. In fact, they're a little bit of a joke. They're a little bit of a waste of time. You know, that leads me to a little bit of commentary here because I think that, you know, we talked about uh, the comment last week that some people are going to Washington just to get on media assignments to build up their brand, to do communications, and to not worry about legislating because they're not really thinking about it and it's not important to them. And uh, MTG said that. Um, that really committees are not important, uh, which I think is kind of shocking because when you're in the legislative branch, your job there is to legislate. It's to pass laws. It's to make laws. You are not there to be a media personality uh, or to go on TV and talk about things and be a commentator. You can be a pundit from the side. Uh, you're there to do a job, and that job is to make laws. If you don't want to do that job, then run for another job. Run for another office where you don't have to do that job. Uh, and I think this is kind of a cheapening of our political process here because nobody actually wants to do the job. Everybody just wants to be on TV. They want to be on Twitter. They want to be on Facebook. They don't actually want to legislate and get things done. And that's what's contributing to uh, gridlock, and that's what's contributing to the fact that things don't get done in our politics these days, which unfortunately you know, leaves us all poorer as a nation to have to move forward. And we have real structural issues that need to be solved. There is ideology involved. There are things that we can disagree on, but eventually, eventually, Washington is going to have to get its act together and decide to legislate and govern in a real and meaningful way. That's it for this week here on Spin Class. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.